Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Today, we are talking about trans activism in the Philippines and the potential transformative power of documentary. Our guest is Dr. Curran Nolt, Assistant Professor in the Department of Radio, Television, Film at the University of Texas at Austin, and a faculty affiliate of the LGBTQ Studies and the Center for Asian American Studies. They are the author of Queer Core, Queer Punk Media Subculture, and their scholarship on grassroots transmedia subcultures has been published in such journals as Jumpcut, Transgender Studies Quarterly, The New Americanist, Feminist Media Studies, and the Journal of Film and Video, as well as various anthologies. A public-facing scholar, Curran is the founder artistic director of the Queer Transmedia Festival Outsider, co-producer of the documentaries Before You Know It and Call Her Ganda, and the co-founder of the Austin Asian American Film Festival. Curran. Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I want to start by asking you, can you tell us more about your research and, I guess, practice interests and why do these topics interest you and why are they an important area to study? Yeah, definitely. So my research centers on grassroots or DIY, do-it-yourself, queer transmedia artivism or art and activism. So what I'm really interested in is subcultural queer productions that are being created outside of, or at least on the outskirts of the mainstream media industries, and that are motivated by something beyond financial gain. They have activist aims, they're invested in community building over commerce. Um, and for me, that's really where capital Q queer culture exists and the world-making potential that we often associate with queer culture. Uh, because those are the spaces where creativity happens, where something out of the box happens, and where I think folks are really envisioning new imaginings, new sociopolitical landscapes for how we might organize um, the world. Um, so yeah, so I, in my mind, I, I consider myself, my work really about the, the core of queer culture, right? And queer cultural creativity. Great. Um, so today we're discussing your article, Documenting the Dead, Call Her Ganda and the Trans Activist Afterlife of Jennifer Loud, published in Transgender Studies Quarterly in 2021. So it's fresh off the uh, digital yes, publishing. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you use a brief history of this essay, um, starting like when you started thinking about it or working on it? And how did the ideas change in the process of research and of writing it? Sure. Yeah, well, I'll give you a little bit of the backstory to how the article came about, which is also how the documentary that I wrote the article about came about, because they kind of happened in tandem with one another. Mm -hmm. um, so it all started in 2014, um, when my partner, uh, who's PJ Roval, who's the director of the film called Call Her Ganda, both of us went to the Philippines to a film festival called the Pink Film Festival in Quezon City in Manila in the Philippines. And PJ had been invited there to show his previous documentary, Before You Know It, which is about gay senior citizens. Um, but while we were there, he was put on a panel on gender rights, gender and human rights, in which he was on the panel with a woman named Virgie Suarez, who's a anti-imperial activist and also a prosecuting attorney in the Philippines. And she, as it turns out, is the person that the Lottie family, Jennifer Lottie family, who I'll explain in a second, um, hired for the a, a key case that had just happened in the Philippines. And so from this attorney, Virgie Suarez, we first learned the story of Jennifer Lottie. So Jennifer Lottie is or was a trans Filipina woman who was murdered in 2014 by a U.S. Marine. So that had happened about two months before PJ and I's trip to the Philippines. And I'm sad to say that we had no real knowledge that this had happened. Like maybe we'd seen a, a line about it somewhere on social media, but we really weren't aware of this case at all. Right. And so hearing Virgie talk about this case 
on this panel was a shocking and also really embarrassing kind of moment as people coming from the United States were the two kind of U.S. folks at the, the festival and kind of not knowing this story of something that our government was involved in that had led to the, the death of this trans Filipino woman. Um, so that was our first kind of introduction to the story. At that same panel, we got the chance to watch a video from Jennifer's mother, um, Nanaya Julita, um, in which it was just a YouTube kind of very basic style video where she was doing a kind of direct address to us and the audience, kind of pleading with us to bring Jennifer's story to our various locations that we come to the festival from, right? Mm -hmm. um, to find justice for Jennifer. Um, and so PJ and I, we talked a lot about this, about like, how could we not know about this story, right? Right. Um, what also came to our attention during that trip was there was a lot of activism happening in the streets due to Jennifer's murder. Mm -hmm. And this was also an eye-opening experience for both of us because these were really robust, fiery protests that were happening in the streets. And they were also bringing together trans LGBTQ activists and anti-imperial activists in the streets, right? And I had never really seen those kinds of forces mixed together. Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly in such a robust way. Um, so that was also really powerful kind of educational experience for me as well. And so long story short, um, although it took us a while to come to this determination because we felt, or PJ felt, even though he's Filipino-American, mm -hmm. he kind of felt like as a Filipino-American, he wasn't necessarily the right person to tell this story. It should be told by folks in the Philippines. Uh, but we eventually came to the realization that there was an importance of educating people, bringing awareness in the ways in that we became aware through this trip, right, back to the United States, right? And right. the story needed to be told in the Philippines for sure, right? But it also needed to be brought back, right, to the country that had you know, caused this in all sorts of direct and indirect ways through our, the kind of histories of colonization. Um, and so, yeah, long story short, we decided that we were going to make a documentary about uh, Jennifer Lottie's case and what happened um, after the murder. So one of the things you've been mentioning is the sort of positionality as Americans being in the Philippines and the, the sort of thorny issues around being an American, even... Uh, someone like PJ, a Filipino-American, representing this story. So could you talk a little bit more about that, about that context um, of the relationship to U.S.-Philippines um, and the sort of the Im Im new imperialist um, movements against that relationship as well? Yeah, I mean, to give you the kind of brief, quick history, um, the Philippines as a set of island nations that's in a kind of strategically located position in relationship to places like, like China, to Korea, mm -hmm. um, has often been, it's a resource rich site, right? So it has been long colonized by different folks over the years. Um, most, uh, for the longest period of time, right, is the Spanish uh, colonization, which started in the 1500s and went all the way up until um, 1898 with the Spanish-American War. Um, and through the Spanish-American War, um, Spain essentially ceded the Philippines to the United States. And so the Philippines, starting around the turn of the last century, right, becomes a colony of the United States and is really seen as the official beginning of the United States as a colonial um, power. Um, that officially lasts, right, that, that period of colon U.S. colonization until World War II, so 1946. Mm -hmm. But in all sorts of ways, the United States is still a neocolonial power in the Philippines, and that legacy lives on in various ways. 
And one of the main ways that impinges on the story of Jennifer Lade and that comes up in the documentary as well is through an agreement between the US and the Philippines called the Visiting Forces Agreement. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it essentially any crime that's committed by a US service person in the Philippines, um, they are under the jurisdiction of the United States, right? right? So essentially the United States gets to decide you know, if that person goes to trial, what are the conditions of how that person goes to trial? Um, and you can imagine that that has allowed for all sorts of crimes uh, on behalf of U.S. military forces in the Philippines, uh, sexual assaults, murders, other crimes, to go completely um, unprosecuted, to be swept under the rug, right? And so Jennifer Lottie's case becomes one of the very first instances where a serviceman gets put on trial and is actually eventually convicted, although it's um, for a lesser charge than they had hoped for. But it's right. the first conviction, right? So um, the, the, the case, the, the context is very much imbued with this kind of history of U.S. imperialism that has allowed for the U.S. to continually take advantage of its relationship with the Philippines to treat Philippine citizens as kind of disposable, uh, et cetera, right? And so going back also to your original question, that also creates a, a very complicated dynamic uh, for PJ, even though, right, he's of Filipino descent. Um, he still grew up in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a white U.S. citizen, right? So even more complicated. Right. So what does it mean to tell a story of another culture that your own culture has had this abusive history towards? But at the same time, right, as I was saying, that also opens up possibilities of challenging our own culture, right, through that story. And it also, for PJ, I think this became an opportunity to at least on a symbolic level, to reckon with what it means to be Filipino-American, right? To have these two identities that have been in conflict in a lot of ways um, that have caused him to feel sort of out of place in the U.S. as not kind of fitting in in, in, in various ways or to feel a, a sense of tension, right, between those two identities. So the, the film in some ways was him working through those, those tensions on a personal level as well. Right, right. So in, in many in many ways, the 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 case of Jennifer Laude ended, ends up being sort of a flashpoint for a number of things. Right, not only the case itself as being the first time that a U.S. service member is actually tried uh, in the Philippines, despite the the visiting forces agreement. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Um, but then also the 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 film in some ways is a way to thinking about that relationship and how, what is the responsibility of uh, American creatives to to telling the stories of the Philippines um, and how to do that uh, appropriately too right yes exactly so in some ways color ganda participates is not the only uh, sort of artist um, artistic activist response to Jennifer Lauda's death um, can you tell us a bit more about the, the sort of general response to her murder and through like activist circles or art, artist circles um, and what kind what kind of shape did that take so there as we know right uh, the murder of trans women is all too common not just in the philippines but across the globe and a, mm-hmm. particularly trans women of color and in the united states right those deaths generally go uh, there, people are not protesting in mass waves in the street when a trans woman gets killed, right? So right. there's also that that was really powerful and moving and compelling um, and also kind of really showed uh, a certain lack of activism that's happening in the United States. Mm-hmm. So there was that grassroots activism. But in a lot of ways, the film is really highlighting several of the different kind of activist forces that are happening in relationship to the murder of Jennifer Lade um, through three women, right, who are in various ways doing different forms of activism. Mm -hmm. Um, One is Naomi Fontanos, who's an amazing 
um, grassroots activist. Uh, activist. Um, she's the founder and executive director of a transgender rights group called Ganda Gender and Development Advocates for the Filipinas in the Philippines. Um, so she's one of the key figures in the film who's one of those people that was marching in the streets, right, and demanding something being done. Um, Virgie Suarez, who I mentioned before, who's the prosecuting attorney and also an anti-imperial activist, right, is using the law, right, to put pressure on, you know, getting justice done for this case, right? So you have Naomi in the streets, you have Virgie Suarez in the courts, and then a third main character, uh, Meredith Talison, is a, a journalist from the United States. She's also Filipina-American who was trying to bring this story to the attention of the, the, wider, the wider public and kind of using the press to amplify the story, to get interest and make sure it didn't get swept under the rug. Right. Yeah. And you also have um, Jennifer's mother herself, um, Nana Julita, right, who's in a lot of ways the reminder of the human cost and the humanity at the center of this, this story of Jennifer's murder. Um, so I think all those characters in the film are representative of the different forms of, of activism that were happening and are still happening um, in relationship to this, this murder of Jennifer Lade. Um, there's also been um, other works that have uh, focused on uh, the death of Jennifer Lade, including uh, there's a narrative film by June Lana called um, Die Beautiful, which is a fictional uh, take take on um, Jennifer Lade's um, death, although it's a kind of a fictionalized version. I don't think they use her name in, in that film. So there's lots of stuff that has kind of happened. It's become a huge flashpoint in the Philippines for thinking about LGBTQ rights, trans rights, for sure, and also... Ra like raising these questions of continued U.S. imperialism in the Philippines in a really kind of big way. Right, right. Yeah, and it's interesting that both, there are all of these different levels at the sort of institutional level, like protesting on the street, uh, the trial where the response is happening, um, and then the film sort of captures these different levels um, through um, the different women who are working towards... Um, bringing justice for, for, for Laude, right? Exactly. And I think the woman part is really important there too, right? That um, it's these folks who are marginalized in multiple layers on top of layers ways, right? Not only are they from the global South, they've experienced this history of colonization from places like the United States. You know, that in certain cases, they're trans. They're also women, right? In this paternalistic society as most are, right? Mm -hmm. So that, I think, the fact that that activism is coming from, from, you know, the ground in all sorts of meaningful ways, I think is really powerful. So one of the things you mentioned is that what was surprising um, was the sort of the protest on the street for the murder of a trans woman of color, which is... We, we know that there are a lot of trans women of color being murdered around the globe, and yet there is not a huge uh, push, let's say, for, from mainstream uh, groups for protesting or bringing attention to this. Um, so that becomes a, a significant aspect to that. Um, it also becomes one of the, the sort of main things that you're thinking about in terms of using documentary to bring awareness to uh, or to think through these kinds of issues, right? So... Um, can you tell us a bit more about that, about thinking about documentaries about trans people and the, the sort of the theoretical framework that you're using to think about um, the sort of politics around that? Another thing that was kind of colliding in this particular moment when we learned about the Jennifer Lade case and visited the Philippines, I, was, I also happened to be reading a bunch of different works on the concept of, of necropolitics. Mm -hmm which was really just sort of taking off around that time. Um, although was coined in the early 2000s by Ashley Mbembe, right? Um, and the work on necropolitics, which is extending Foucault's idea of biopolitics, is that the way that power is working in our contemporary society is not just about, you know, organizing life, how we can live, but also with making death and like 
putting certain populations in a position where um, they don't have access to full life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we can think about the conditions of continued colonization, right? Histories of genocide, et cetera. We can think about Black Lives Matter in the U.S. and the ways in which white supremacy is propped up, exists on the back of Black bodies and all sorts of symbolic and literal ways, right? Right. Um, so I was reading that work, and on a kind of a subset of that work that was actually really coming out of queer studies, um, queer necropolitics or trans necropolitics work, um, was talking about the representation, including the representation, um, a documentary representation, I should say, of of death, right, and how it um, worked with this kind of concept of necropolitics. And so people like C. Riley Snorton, Jen Harita Warren, Erin Azura, um, were writing about how the deaths of trans women are often exploited for the value of other projects and politics, including through documentary practice, right? Meaning that, right, a trans woman is murdered um, and then her name is evoked in various um, remembrance ceremonies or uh, political causes to support, you know, policies that are really to the benefit of white gay men and not trans women of color. Or, you know, trans women are are murdered and then there's like a documentary made about that case um, that just puts money in the pocket of the documentary filmmaker and, and nothing really goes back to help those communities that were affected by um, these acts of violence, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was reading this work at the same time that this documentary project landed in um, our laps. And so it was really from the start thinking and having conversations with PJ about, you know, what is the responsibility of a documentary filmmaker in, in telling these kinds of stories? Mm-hmm. And how do you kind of work against those extractive, exploitive politics that are part of this kind of necropolitical documentary impulse. Um, and that those questions really kind of informed the, the essay that I wrote. It also informed in a lot of ways what we tried to do with the documentary and how we tried to do certain things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, in no way do I, through the essay or through the way that we did the documentary, pretend to have all of the answers, but rather it's, both of those things are kind of a reckoning and try to work through the thorniness of these difficult kind of questions. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's difficult, right? Like I think a major step in, in how you're talking about this is just acknowledging how even the documentary practice, when it's coming from, let's say just full of good intentions and under the banner of bringing awareness to social issues ends up perpetuating the very similar practices, right, of not allowing uh, full life or exposing particular subjects to certain forms of death, right, when it's just documentarians who are profiting off of telling the stories of murdered um, trans women, right, Um, or when the the life or the cases of specific trans women are just sort of um, subsumed into the larger gay cause, and then it ends up mostly just benefiting gay men, right? Um, all of those things end up being replicated in the artistic practice. So being just acknowledging that and being reflexive about how to push back on that is an important first step. Yeah. And I think also, and this is like a conclusion I'll come back to again and again, both in the the essay and um, probably today I'll I'll mention this again, but is realizing that the the documentary itself isn't the activism, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it shouldn't be the conclusion or the end point. Like, oh, I've made the documentary. I've raised some awareness. My job is done. It's really the beginning. It's like, what, what, what do you do with that documentary? And what do you do afterwards? Um, is the real, I think, activist project or the important part in a lot of ways. Right. Right. And part of that, you mentioned this in the article, the, the sort of way that documentary is the beginning um, I think the way you phrase it is like it's a it's an aesthetic call to ethical accountability. Um, so, if the documentary is sort of the beginning, can, can you tell us a bit more about how you were thinking about how does Call Her Ganda in particular begins that process? Um, how does it stand in as the the starting point for for that ethical call? 
beyond that kind of simple idea that documentary, oh, it informs you of something that happened. Now you're aware the job is done, right? Like how can a documentary go deeper than that? And in my essay, I talk about that both on an aesthetic level and some aesthetic choices that were made in the documentary that I think or hope maybe push the audience to um, be more reflective, uh, to want to be more active in their response, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also talk about what's happened around and after the making of the documentary, which in a lot of ways, again, I think is the most important part. What, another, in, in addition to talking about necropolitics in the essay, I also talk about Derrida's con- concept of ontology, mm-hmm. right? This kind of logic of ghosts that are, you know, not really present or absent, right? They're not really dead or alive, right? The, the idea of things that keep returning to us that aren't really part of the past, right? They're like, the, the ways in which the past, present, and future kind of collapse mm-hmm. through the realm of the ghost, right? Because the ghost is the past that comes back, but that also points us to possible futures, right? The ways in which kind of memory and possibility are all intertwined here in this kind of space of, of death or deathliness. Right. Um, it, and so I also use that kind of concept of thinking about the ways in which the documentary tries to haunt the audience, um, to possess the audience in various ways as this mode of putting them in, in a position of, of uh, having to be more uh, thoughtful and more um, accountable and active in relationship to their response. So one of the things that I talk about, for example, is the repeating image in, in the documentary of Jennifer Lade. Um, there's footage, it's one of the only footage that exists of Jennifer Lade um, that she took herself, or she had a friend take um, on a cell phone where she's in a red dress um, at a um, uh, pageant pageant um, ceremony, right? And, which is a big thing, particularly among the trans community in the Philippines, these kind of pageant shows, right? Where they do like fashion and performance stuff and right. it's, it's a moment of like really kind of wonderful community and support and folks kind of um, being able to kind of celebrate their fabulosity and, and excellence and find, find joy, right? Mm-hmm. And so this footage of her is this moment of this like absolute happiness and joy as she's, you know, getting ready for um, this pageant in in her red dress. And that footage of her repeats multiple times throughout over and over again in in the film. And I think that's important, right? As a reminder of this life, right? In this moment of this really heightened aliveness of of Jennifer um, that we can't forget about, right? And that we can't move past. Jennifer, in a lot of ways, isn't gone, right? Mm -hmm. And, And won't be gone, right? Or won't be able to rest until we ourselves wrestle with these issues of trans misogyny, racism, colonization, right? That mm-hmm. you know, caused her death. Um, so I think there's something to me really important about breaking with the ways in which documentaries often happen in a kind of linear fashion where it starts with, oh, here's the, the facts of the case or the details of what happened. And then X, Y, and Z happens afterwards right? Mm -hmm. It's not a linear narrative, right? These are cycles, again, of trans misogyny, colonization, racism, right? So you can't really tell the story in that way. Um, And we can't just move past the murder. We can't move past Jennifer Lottie and get to what's after, right? We should be haunted by it. We should be entangled in it in all sorts of ways and and not just be able to wash our hands of it. So talk about stuff like that. I also talk about... um, for example, uh, there's um, a, a section of the the documentary that recounts the details of the murder of, of Jennifer, which was a really grisly, horrible uh, murder where she was drowned in a, in a toilet um, by this U.S. Marine, Joseph Scott Pemberton. And the ways in which that, that happens is through a series of images of the places where the actions occurred, but they're entirely absent of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can imagine again, a, doc- a more traditional documentary, you might do some kind of reenactment mm-hmm. of the murder, right? 
um, or just kind of leave it to sort of talking heads to, you know, tell the story. But I think in presenting these spaces that are sig- signifying kind of absence and, and loss, right, of what, and the kind of residue of, of what happened there, like there's a feeling of haunting to those spaces, right, as the story is being laid out. Um, but I think there's also something about not having the escape of an easy representation of what happened, but instead having that be implanted in our minds where we have to, we see these empty spaces of of where the death happened and we have to imagine it. Right. That pulls us as an audience into the text, right? Because it's in our brains now, it's in our heads, it's in our, we're having to envision it internally inside of us. Right. So I hope that there's something about that internalization that, you know, makes us unsettled, right? Upset and angry, and then hopefully more riled up to do something, right? Mm-hmm. The ne- different aesthetic decisions that you, that you point to um, are not only very consciously about this awareness of the, you know, the past as implicated with the present and possibly pointing to a different future, but I think as you point out, the 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 way it invites not only invites but forces the viewer to be more uh, involved in thinking through the the series of events and what they happened is in some way that that beginning of thinking about that accountability right Um, it would be very different as you point out to have a reenactment which just tells us the facts quote unquote externalizes Um, it yeah exactly and it's like oh now i know what happened but rather it's forcing you to actually uh, think through and internalize uh, those those facts right yeah um but as as you point out, this is kind of just the the, the beginning. It, it would be um, sort of simplistic to think that oh, this forces the viewer to really self-respect, and we just assume that media transforms the world simply by not yeah. showing us the thing, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so, Sin, can you talk about a bit more about what comes after that? So, how does the film get pick, picked up, or what are the different kind of works that uh, have followed from from the film to think about? Um, applications or what to do yeah exactly right and so yeah there's a hope that like aesthetically the the film maybe does some things differently that get the audience to be more active in their response or more um reflective about these issues but like i said it really is about what's beyond the documentary what the documentary can do um not what the documentary is or does itself mm-hmm. and so we thought a lot about that and and this kind of really starts with um, the documentary ends with um, a call to action for the audience um, and a link for them to go to the, the website for Kaharganda where they can donate money to the Lade family. To, the money goes directly to Lade's, Jennifer Lade's um, mother, Nenai Jovita, mm-hmm. who um, is um, not only suffering this great loss, but is living a very working class, you know, life trying to deal with all of the the costs that come with litigating a case and so forth. Right. So that money is extremely um, needed um, in in this instance. So there's that, but then there has been a huge kind of impact campaign that, that PJ Raval, the the director um, and his team myself included, but more on the outskirts, have enact- enacted in the, now I guess it's been almost three years since the documentary was initially released in 2018. And we're still doing, or he's doing really um, those impact campaign stuff really on mm-hmm. a daily basis. And so from the beginning, like the, the film premiered at Tribeca in um, New York in 2018, immediately after the, or the next day after the first um, screening, we gathered together local activists who were involved in a number of different causes that were related to the documentary, whether it be trans justice um, or whether it be um, kind of thinking about uh, Filipino culture and activism or kind of anti-imperial activism. Um, and we also gathered a bunch of folks in the Philippines, right, uh, who we zoomed in 
Um, who knew that, that that would become the way of our lives? <laughs> <Soon> yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> right. It had just a, like a, a, a days long kind of brainstorming discussion about the issues of the documentary and how the documentary could be useful. Like, what can we do now to actually make some an impact, make some change that would actually be useful? And a lot of things came out of that brainstorming session. And several subsequent, we did brainstorming sessions at many of the different premieres in different cities around um, the U.S. and also in the Philippines. And a lot of things came out of those brainstorming sessions that we've been implementing ever since. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a wide variety of things, um, like community screenings um, that have been attached to various fundraising efforts, um, sometimes directly related to uh, the film, like maybe it's um, like an organization like Gabriela USA, which is a feminist Filipina anti-imperial um, organization. But then a lot of causes that are kind of adjacent to um, the, the subject, the topic of the documentary have also taken it up. Um, like, for example, there was... Uh, or there is an organization called um, Diversidades in Fronteras, which mm -hmm. is um, particularly responding to the U.S. culture of incarceration and migrant detention, okay. um, and specifically how that's impacting trans women, right, and the ways in which they're being um, caged in these facilities, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so not the same story, but a connected story in terms of U.S. imperialism and how it's being enacted on, on trans women and trans uh, bodies, right? And so there was also a fundraising event that happened for that organization where they also screened the film and talked about the issues in it. Um, and so all of that, I mean, again, it's not a perfect solution, right? But I think it's it's all done in this mindset that the documentary itself is not the act activism, right? That it's right. what happens after the documentary and, and with the documentary that matters and continuing to try to find ways to work against that necropolitical problem of extracting and then walking away. Like, can we find ways to give back, make a difference, try to, um, change the, the conditions that kind of led to this murder happening in the, in the first place? Yeah. Right, right. I think I think that distinction is is key. The the sort of traditional way that we think about it in terms of a documentary, especially documentaries made by people who are not from the community, is very much an extractive relationship. Right, it's sort of the coming in, filming the story, and then leaving and yeah. profiting off of the like sharing the story with the world. Yeah. Um, but a lot of what you're pointing out is is one, it's more of a cyclical relationship of like bringing the story, but as a way to think about how to change the conditions that led to, to that story happening. Exactly. Um, and then also building out from that, right? So I think, as you point out, with the different organizations that hosted screenings or discussions after screenings, a lot of the issues, uh, trans misogyny, racism, uh, colonialism, that really um, come together in this one case are also coming together in a lot of different cases in a lot of different circumstances, right? right. So um, using that as a, as a launch point to talk about these broader issues that affect numerous communities around the world is also helpful to see those points of connection, right? Those solidarities across transnational yeah. solidarities even. One of the key things that we discovered that the film could be is a point of connection that, mm -hmm you know, brought different groups that maybe weren't activist groups that weren't necessarily talking to one another or had a, a reason to come together for something. It, it became a way for them to come to a screening or come to a discussion and get to know each other and then develop their own projects and, and solidarities and collaborations coming out of that. So I think you hit on something that's, that's, that's super key, right? That the, that a text that something can be like it's in some ways the text itself is becomes not even so much important anymore. It just becomes a, a reason for different people to be in a room and um, amazing sort of activist things can happen from those people gathering together. So one of the, the ways you talk about this um, sets of moving 
beyond the documentary or what the documentary can talk about is um, the trans activist afterlife uh, as a sort of a concept that you're thinking through in this in this article. Um, could you tell us a bit more about that and how you how you think through this um, concept in, in Call Her Conda? For me, that idea of the afterlife has multiple meanings. This idea of the kind of ontological understandings of, of death as not being something that we can dismiss or move beyond kind of really easily fits with this idea of the afterlife, right? That in a lot of ways, Jennifer's legacy lingers on, um, the causes of her death linger on, right? And that we're existing in that moment where it's our responsibility to honor Jennifer's legacy and also it's our responsibility to change those conditions, right? So we're in that, that idea of that kind of afterlife is that liminal space, right? After um, a death, right? That um, is the space that we can't move beyond it, right? That, that, that requires a certain amount of action. So that's one of the ways I'm thinking about afterlife. I'm thinking about afterlife in terms of what we've been discussing in terms of the afterlife of the documentary, right? That mm -hmm. the life of the documentary is not just like you made it, right? It's like what happens afterwards. But also the, the film itself is focused, I mentioned this before, on the women who are impacted in various ways by the death of Jennifer Lotte and then what do they, how does it impact them? And then what do they, what do they do with that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's also about the in a, a continuation in, in some ways of both, again, the legacy and also about the problematics that, that produced Jennifer's death and the ways in which the various women in the documentary are continuing to kind of grapple with those, those tensions and with those, those issues as well. Right, right. The, in keeping with the thinking about the past is not yet past, it's imbricated in the present and the future. It's many ways that, um, despite her murder, Jennifer Laudis sort of continues on um, as, as a symbol, but also as a real person that impacted all of these women who are now still grappling with, with, those, um, with the conditions that led to her murder and how to fix them in, in the future as well. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that the idea of the afterlife, I think, is also important in terms of thinking about the afterlife of colonization too, right? Like the, all of these mm -hmm. things, like that, the idea of the post-colonial, right? We're not really, we're not past it, right? Like the, the, it's the, the aftershocks, the after effects, the aftermath, or the afterlife that the ways in which it continues to impinge on us. One of the things that I think is, is really uh, fascinating about. Um, the way you start the article and how you sort of lay out your contribution um, is you mentioned basically what you, what you mentioned earlier, which is your own involvement in the film that you're analyzing, how you came to it, um, how you started thinking about these ideas, and also how you were in conversation, I guess, with the director of the film as, as he was doing it. So can you tell us a little bit more about that process? Like, um, a, why was it important for you in the article itself to lay out um, the connections for the reader from the beginning um, of your involvement in the film and with the case? And then why, why is this important for, for the sort of theoretical or the scholarly intervention that, that your work is doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, first and foremost, I wanted to acknowledge my own relationship to the documentary, just, just to be honest and upfront about it, and so that, you know, readers can judge what I'm saying accordingly, right? Mm -hmm. um, including, you know, thinking about the ways that my perspective is, is compromised and, you know, can be challenged in various ways. Um, but I also really wanted, I mean, the, the piece is really, in the ways that I approach academia in general, really, is, is often about asking questions rather than trying to come up with the absolute answer to something, mm -hmm. right? And especially when we're talking about something as thorny and ethically complex as um, this kind of transmisogynist um, colonizing sort of murder, right? And the ways in which the documentary ethics and, and death are, are really sort of very complicated. 
Right. There's no easy answer to that, and there's no easy out of that. So I also really wanted to implicate myself within the thoroughness of these ethics and the ways in which we're all sort of complicit with these politics, even without us kind of realizing it. Right. Um, so I really wanted to put on display um, the, the ways that I was grappling with these issues in the essay, my own, I guess, imperfections and the ways in which I'm trying to work through these dilemmas and the ways in which I'm, I'm complicit in various ways and the ways in which some of the choices I'm making might be bad or aren't ethical. And that that's actually part of the conversation that I'm wanting to people to have, right? Including, you know, critiquing, you know, the arguments that I'm making or the choices that I'm making as I work through these difficulties, right? And hopefully that prompts people to delve into the difficulties themselves and not be afraid. Like, I feel like, you know, that becomes, that, that could become, I feel like it hold us back in various ways if we're af- afraid of thorny, difficult, complex things that don't have an easy answer, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And there is no easy answer. And like, oh, if I, you know, do it this one way, I'm going to get critiqued and or people will be upset. But at a certain point, you have to, like, if you want to make a difference, you have to work through it. You have to try and, and, and get and learn from, you know, other people and learn from from the experience right right in some ways i guess it's doing the um a similar move as thinking about the documentary as the beginning of a series of activist responses is thinking of the article as as the the beginning of a a series of conversations that exactly allow you to rethink those things right yeah for sure um so i guess related to that how have you built on this work are you thinking of building on this work um, now that it's been published? Uh, I'm actually at the point where I'm starting to think about my second book project because it's been a, a few years since my first book, <laughs> believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I really am interested in is thinking about the complexities of death and relationship to the LGBT community and LGBTQ representation and part of that, and part and kind of going through this project really brought me back to the root of my queerness in a lot of ways, which I uh, grew up in the 1980s in you know small town Massachusetts, right? Um, and so, you know, for folks that are, are younger, it's maybe hard to imagine, but at, at the time, right, it's before the internet, right? It's before you really have much in terms of um, mainstream representation, public representation of LGBT people. Um, the 80s is also the era of HIV AIDS, right? Where gay men are are dying in mass numbers, gay men in particular, but also all, all sorts of people, right? Um, are dying of HIV in mass numbers and the government doesn't care because those people are seen as expendable or as not important, right? Um, right. Which makes it, like looking at the response to the current pandemic is really striking, right? Of, of how the government cares or does not care. And so but growing up in that moment, my introduction to LGBT culture and, and seeing other gay people in the world was seeing um, gay men die of, dying of AIDS on the nightly news, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. So coming into queerness, for me, was imagining that I was coming into an identity of death or that had that you know to be gay was i was going to get aids and i was going to die and that was right that was a message that came to me from all sorts of places so i think there's something about right coming into being like interpolated into an identity that is like seen as marked for death right or that's going to die that really like affects your psyche in a lot of ways and so, like, going through this project, like, I started to, like, rethink and revisit a lot of those kind of, like, early feelings and thinking about the ways in which queerness and death have been intermeshed in these complicated ways. So the long, long, long-winded answer to your question is I'm contemplating a project that's that's going to be thinking about those intersections, right, um, that, that will build upon like a contemporary moment where death and trans identity are, are, are the things that are intertwined, but then also 
points back to those histories of right of HIV AIDS and like who was being marked for death in those kinds of particular moments. So yes, so this piece I think in a a roundabout way will like influence some of my future work. Right, right. Um, you you mentioned at least one connection so far, which is the the current pandemic reminds us of the of ne necropolitics, right, and the way that certain populations are just not allowed full life or are thought of as disposable um, by those in power. But are there any other recent developments in the world that um, have added or or changed the ideas that you were thinking through as you were working on this piece? I think one of the things that's really come to the forefront in you know, recent years of so this conversation has been happening for a while is the importance of, of focusing on, on things like trans joy in addition to tragedy, right? This has also come up in relationship to Black Lives Matter, right? That th we have these images being disseminated again and again of, of Black people being murdered, right? Which is traumatizing in all sorts of ways. Um, so what what does it mean if we you know switch our focus to thinking about trans ex or black excellence and black joy, or trans excellence, trans joy, and so I think um, that's something that I've thought a lot about since the documentary came out, since my essay came out as well, is how what are how do you reckon with right maintaining um, a sense of joy, that sense of excellence even when representing or thinking about this a tragedy or a murder right. of a trans woman, right? And I think we could have done more in that regard in the documentary. Um, it comes partly through those images of Jennifer Lottie in the red dress that I was talking about that, that are these moments of, of great happiness for her and get that vitality and, and joy. Uh, but I think we could have done more with that. Um, and I think I could have done more with thinking through those tensions too in, in my, my work. So that's something that I have thought a lot about is this idea of trans joy, trans excellence, and how that really needs to be part of this kind of activism as well, right? So yeah. Um, Current, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. This was fantastic. This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu, and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. The Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.